Ask me if I'm just very tolerant to cold weather, having coming from Victoria. But the truth is, we moved house November last year, and the bag or the box with all my warm clothes, I haven't actually brought it into the house yet. That's going to become a, a priority this afternoon. So, I am cold, but I was banking on the heating working, and it is, so praise God for heating. Let's open up in prayer. We're going to continue our way through the book of Acts. Um, I had someone during the break just ask me how far are we going this year because our intention was to break it up over three years. I can't remember the exact date, but I put the things into the next lot of roster. I think it's halfway through July. I think we wrap up, um, not finish the book of Acts, but finish the section of Acts that we're looking at this year. So there you go. Let's open up in prayer as we look to God's word together. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the fact that you are an almighty God who not only created us and gave us everything to enjoy, but you are a God who desired to make yourself known to us. And not only known, uh, but that we could know you personally and intimately. But we thank you that you have provided everything we need to to enter into that relationship with you that was once broken by our sin, but Jesus came and bore the punishment for our sin, uh, that by repentance and faith we can come to know you. But not just know you, but Lord, you have given us your word that we might know you clearly, and not only to know you, but to how we live in this life, in this world, in relationship with you. You didn't just come to save us for a future. You've come to change us and transform us that others may hear the good news too. We pray that as we look through your word that you might encourage us to that effect. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as mentioned in the short sleeve comment, um, we moved house around about November last year and our former house in Darling Heights has been on the market since November last year. That's six months. Up until this week... We've had zero offers on that house, which is pretty exciting and pretty encouraging. (laughs) Then in the space of two days, in this week just been, we got two different offers. One from a group who'd come up from Brisbane, um, but was a bit lower than what we were looking for. But we were still excited. Wow, we got our first offer. Then the next day, someone whom the agent was selling a house for locally here in Toowoomba said, we're actually looking to move somewhere else into Toowoomba. Have you got anything that might suit our criteria? And took them to show our house, loved it, put in an offer that day, and most likely we'll sign a contract on that on Monday. But think about that. Six months, all of this marketing, more than 15 open homes, and along that process, some people who really look like they could potentially be the ones... There were some who looked really, really keen. The layout seemed exactly what they liked. They just needed to sell a house somewhere else. And given that we've been on the market for six months, they they probably have. And by all things you could perceive and see, you think, they look most likely. And then out of the blue, without even specifically being prompted, something just happened. It's funny the way it happens sometimes, isn't it? Sometimes it's so easy, based on the things that we can see or we evaluate, we think this is going to be the likely outcome. 
But as the people who are trusting God, we know that there is so much more to this life than the things that we can see or to even to base something on our previous experiencing. And this is how it worked out last time, therefore this is going to work out this time. Because we're not just trusting in a vague sort of maybe on the peripheral sort of God. We are trusting in the almighty, all-powerful God. Not a God who's just good at capitalising when the circumstances are ideal. And as we've been going through the book of Acts, we've seen Paul's ministry. We've seen him present the same wonderful, glorious good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, yet completely different responses. Same people hear the same things in the same city, in the same context. Some hear it as the most rejoicing, joyful news they've ever heard. And others staunchly oppose it. Today we see focused on Paul in Corinth. And you see the same thing over again. You see opposition and you see faith. And you think it would be so easy for Paul to give up. When you think about all of the things that he's gone through, the opposition, the imprisonments, the beating, once being stoned to the extent that they thought he was dead and dragged him out of the city. But something keeps Paul going. And that something is a confidence that God is still at work at saving and God still has a people who when the gospel is brought before them, who will respond. So as we look at our passage, see, if at first you don't succeed, that's his ministry in the synagogue. Did I leave? I missed something. Go next door, well, that is what happens. And I thought I'd left a word out, which is very likely. And then we see that Christianity, a major thing happens in a legal sense in the, the closing five verses. Now Paul so far has really been a city-to-city minister in a lot of these mission trips. He's going to some of the, the real key cities we saw last week in Athens. Now that was really the, the, the cultural hub of all things about thinking, philosophies and religion. And we saw the way Paul was grieved when he got there by the idolatry he saw around him. Not just grieve for God that he's not receiving the honour and worship to which he's due, but grieved in a sense for the people that they are settling for something so much less than what they were created for. We've seen him in Philippi. We'll see in the future in, in Ephesus. In Berea we've looked at. Now Corinth again, it's a big city. Again, like Athens, we see a great diversity of religious practices And that's not really surprising that there's a diversity of culture there because it was a really central trade hub. There were people travelling through along the way. We see it there on the the bigger map. That's the current map of where Corinth is and it still exists and is named by that same name today. But when you zoom in a little bit closer, you see it's at a part of land which is really, really narrow And what would happen is the ships would bring in goods to the port there in Corinth. Slaves would carry the goods to the other side, two and a half kilometres, load them onto another boat and then take them out. Because it was dangerous to go around the the base of the peninsula. 
Now, while Nero hoped to do it, and he wasn't successful, in the last couple of centuries, they actually have built a canal so you can take the boats straight on through. But if Corinth was a really good and central place where goods could come in and then go out to the world, then it becomes an important place for the gospel to go in that the gospel might go out to the world. Now, while there were many good things about Corinth, about, particularly about the fact that it gathered people of all people and then scattered them out, potentially if they came to faith, that faith would go with them and that gospel would go with them. But not everything about Corinth had a good reputation. It was actually a common expression at the time to say to be Corinthianizing meant that you were being immoral. Or to be called a Corinthian wasn't a wasn't a compliment, but it was to say something really bad about your moral character. There was a diversity of religions I mentioned, but part of their religions, it was said that in one of the temples there in Corinth, at this point in time, there were 10,000 temple prostitutes that was part of their religious practice. And so you can understand why in the, in the letters to the Corinthians, why sexual morals and ethics became quite a focal point for Paul to speak into because this was a lot of their background that they were already familiar with. But when Paul comes to Corinth, he doesn't talk about his grief over the idols, although he no doubt would have grieved when he saw all the different religious expressions. And he connects with a couple, Priscilla and Aquila, names you're probably very familiar with, and quite possibly Paul may have even have known them before this point in time. The fact that they go on with ministry to Paul in the, straight after this account, it's very likely that they were already a Christian at this point in time. And most likely Paul is living with them. Potentially most of his Christian ministry is happening out, out of their house. But they also worked alongside them in the same trade of tent making. Throughout the week that's how he would raise his money to support his ministry. Even that very expression of being a tent maker, we use it today of someone who does a normal everyday job to receive an income in order to support the ministry in which they do. But on his Sabbath day, when the Jews were gathered together in the synagogue, Paul did as he's been doing in most of the cities where he was been travelling. That's where Paul would have a ministry amongst those gathered in the synagogue to explain and reason with them that the Christ that they were looking forward to has come and his name was Jesus. That's been the cycle throughout all of the place. Reason with the Jews in the synagogue, some believe, some haven't done, then go also out to some of the Gentiles, some of those believe, some don't do. But on this occasion, we start on a very different foot. His ministry within the synagogue is expressed in this way, they opposed him and reviled him. And he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. So it's not really off to a good start. He goes to the place where he's always done his regular routine, starting at the synagogue, where normally some will come to faith and some won't. And here the place that's been most effective for him in the past, nothing. You might start to wonder if he thinks, this place probably wasn't the place to come. 
even the people who have got this, all the foundations and who are looking for the Messiah or the Christ and when they get presented with him, don't want a bar of it. You think, what's the chance with the rest of the pagan immoral people around it if they're not going to listen? I don't think Paul's inclined to think that way. I think if Paul was inclined to think that way, he would have given up a long, long, long time ago. If he would just base things on what he could see or what opposition he received. When you look to the writer of Hebrews, he spoke about Jesus. And he spoke about Jesus saying, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He says of Jesus, because he saw the outcome of what his death on the cross would achieve, to set people free from their sin and the consequences of their sin, to restore them and reconcile them to God, to to grant them eternal life, he gladly endured the cross because of the joy of what it would achieve for others. And for Paul, he gratefully, graciously endured much opposition because of the joy he had of telling people about what Jesus had done to set them free and for the hope that would come for those who would respond to it. So he goes and proclaims the good news wherever he goes because the outcome, what's at stake, is so huge. We see that lesson as Jesus taught in a parable of the sower. He talked about a, a, a farmer scattering seed that where the seed was symbolic of the word of God going out. And he just scattered the seed everywhere. And the whole purpose of what Jesus was saying was, he wasn't saying the farmer went out, found the good patches of land with the, with the good soil and just put seed there. Rather, he said, rather than trying to find where the good soil was, he scattered the seed everywhere and the way he found out where the good soil was was that is where the word of God produced fruit. He scattered seeds in places that didn't look like it was good soil. But he found good soil because it produced fruit. And that's the same as Paul and his ministry. You can't tell based on external things where God is going to save a person, where God is going to radically turn someone around. I think sometimes, if we're being honest, we are far, far too cautious in trying to find the good soil and invest our time only there. But the way I see the Bible, we don't always have that sort of external things that we can discern that. We're called to give account. We're called to be faithful in proclaiming the word. I think sometimes people look around and think, ah, there's so little good soil in this world left these days. As though somehow God's fighting an uphill battle that's beyond his power. How about we restore some faith in the power of the gospel? People weren't that open and receptive in the times that we're reading throughout the book of Acts, but the power of the gospel transformed people. How about we restore faith in the power of God to save? So what does Paul do when the synagogue people oppose him? Does he think, nah, Corinth, no good for you? Well, he goes next door, shakes off the dirt, goes to the house next door to the synagogue 
And there you see people come to faith. There's no such thing as a bad place to take the gospel. I think there are times when we start to think, this is a better place or this is the worst place to take the gospel. I think when we start talking in terms about where's a good or a bad place to take the gospel, we start to actually undermine the power of the gospel itself to say that God can only work when the, when the settings or the circumstances are conducive. As though if things look hard, then somehow that's too hard for God. Remember the scattering of the seed in the parable of the sower? Scatter the, spread the word everywhere. Find out where it's good soil based on where people respond and believe. Just like justice next door to the synagogue. He believed. He was probably part of the synagogue. He probably heard Paul's message originally there. And possibly now, this is the place where Paul is centred and doing all of his Christian teaching from, right next door to the synagogue. And if you thought that was unexpected, then we're told that the synagogue leader named Crispus, he believed, and he and his whole family were baptised. This is the power of that gospel that I'm talking about that can go into places that, in terms of external appearances, look like you've got no chance whatsoever and radically transform and turn people around. This guy was the leader of the synagogue where everyone opposed Paul. Yet he heard the same message about Jesus. And even as the leader, he and his whole family believed and were baptised. And then others believed and were baptised. All of this happened in a city where the synagogue on the whole was opposing Paul. The rest of them were known to be a pagan, immoral people. Yet out of that context, God didn't say, okay, you clean yourself up a little bit, then I'm going to start saving people. In the middle of that, God is saving people. This stuff hopefully should inspire us. And when you hear stories about things where things just look like they're going really, really bad, and then in the middle of that, the power of God is seen in God saving people out of their sin, out of the kingdom of darkness, into the kingdom of his beloved son. The more I read around, the more I notice that even some of the most esteemed ministers or Christians and theologians who've been before us in the past often go through times when they really start to doubt themselves, when they get really discouraged in their ministry. And for Paul, who receives a vision in the night from God saying, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. As a Christian, it's very easy to read through that and see, see it begin with, do not be afraid and think, oh yeah, that, that happens throughout the Bible all the time. That's kind of like a, a common sort of greeting. But remember, this is the almighty God who knows absolutely everything. Therefore, he's not the sort of person who's going to waste words on pleasantries. So when the all-knowing God says to Paul, do not be afraid, don't stop speaking, don't be silent, can only be because Paul actually was afraid. 
there was something within Paul that was inclined to think, I'm going to just quiet down a little bit. Maybe I'll, I'll just stop talking in the city about Jesus. Now, when you hear that, you might think, really? Paul would be scared? Paul would be someone who would even consider for a moment of kind of standing or just taming things down a little bit or even not talking about Jesus? Sure, Paul was a bold man, but he was human. Remember the whole accumulation of everything he's been through. Eventually, some of that stuff's got to really take a bit of a toll on you. But you could think, well, he's endured the trials and the imprisonments, the beatings, the stoning. Why now? He's weak like all of us. These things do take a toll. When you read through Christian biographies, it's not at all uncommon to see some of the key people you look up to go through times where they felt thoroughly defeated and really questioned whether they were doing the right thing. But God comforted Paul in two different ways. He says, don't be afraid because I'm with you. And not only am I with you, but I've got a people in this city. And God says to Paul, I'm with you. Everything you need for what you need, the almighty God is with you. And let me give you a heads up. I've still got people in this city who are mine, whom I've chosen before the foundation of the world. This is going to be good. If you take the gospel out, there are people here who will respond. That opening line is the very most common thing you see said of God in the Bible. Don't don't fear, I am with you. You think, why does it come up so frequently? Because we need to hear it. Because we are so inclined to forget that the very power of God is with us on this occasion he also promises them no one will attack you to harm you up until this point in time most of Paul's ministry has been a pretty short stay in the cities after receiving this encouragement that don't be afraid I am with you no one's going to harm you in this place I've got a people whom I've called out before the foundation of the world, Paul, for the first time, stays long-term, 18 months. He stays in Corinth, teaching the word of God. Now, I don't know on this particular day how much it feels to you like God is with you. I don't know how much your life circumstances look like God is actively involved in your life. But if you are a Christian... That is, if you have turned from trusting in yourself, repented of your sin, turned to Christ and trusting in him, God is with you. The almighty God who created heaven and earth, who rose Jesus Christ from the dead, is with you. And if you want to think about that in a sort of tangible sense to help you think through things, think about in your circumstances, if Jesus was right there, right next to you, how would you approach that differently? And that, brothers and sisters, is your reality. So how did it pan out for Paul? Well, verse 12 probably seems a little bit strange, doesn't it? 
God has just promised that no one is going to attack you to harm you. Back in verse 10, verse 12. And now during this time, the Jews attacked Paul. Did, did not God not come through on his promises? Hang on, what does it say back verse 10? Will not attack you to harm you. During the time of Gallio, the Jews had conspired against Paul. They were going to bring charges against him. They were hoping to see things maliciously happen to him. And it seems the method they had in mind to achieve that was to bring him before Gallio and bring some charges of crimes against Paul. Clearly the crimes they're trying to bring before them, not just religious matters, they believe they've done something against Roman law, So speaking of Paul, they say this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Galileo's got no interest in whether or not it's against Judaism. They're trying to put forward a case. This guy is doing stuff that is against Roman law. Now to their credit, there were such things as being authorised religion under Rome. Judaism was one of them. Christianity had never been listed as an approved religion to be practised in the Roman Empire. But look at Gallio's response. As far as he's concerned, no crime's taking place. He hears it as just a matter about talking about names, their law and religion, says, nothing to do with me, you sort it out yourself. Not only does that show us the way that which God carried out the promise that no harm would happen to Paul, but that opened up the gates for, for ministry in the Roman Empire. That there was, a, there was a precedent throughout Rome that Christianity was not illegal. That allowed for the expansion of the gospel across the empire. So what? You could kind of read through this and think, well, it's pretty standard fare in terms of Paul's mission activity. We're not talking massive numbers. We see the usual approach starting at the synagogue, which was initially completely unfruitful. But in the middle of all that, people repent, people trust in Jesus, they enter into his kingdom, and they're baptised. Because numbers aren't a key issue. Because if God is the one who does the saving, numbers, that's, that's God's game. He can, he can call about numbers high or low. But there's an important principle here on display. Sometimes I've, I've heard people say, this is my verse. And God said to Paul, don't be afraid, go on speaking, do not be silent. I am with you and no one will attack you or harm you for I have many people in this city who are mine. Is that a verse we can say, this is God speaking to me? Well, no, you can't actually. That was something that was spoken specifically to Paul. But can we claim we've got no reason to fear because God is with us? Sure we can. Can we claim no one's going to harm us? No, that was kind of specific to Paul and even in specific to that context there in Corinth, Paul did get harmed in other cities later on. Can we claim that God has people in this city? Yes, we can. 
Because the only other alternative to say is there's no one left in the entirety of Toowoomba that God's going to save. And I'm not really convinced I'm going to make that sort of a statement. To say, no, all done, none left. Quota's done. And I think in here lies a privilege and encouragement to every single one of us. That in this place in which we live, workplaces, neighbourhoods, hobby groups, whatever, there are people whom God has chosen before the foundation of the world that they would be his children. Last week we saw how he said that God created people in this time, in these places, that they might seek and find their way to God. Now that should excite you. We are not surrounded purely by people who are so hard-hearted who will never respond to the gospel. Amongst the people who are around us are people who God has chosen before the foundation of the world and has placed him within a desire that they might seek and find God. The only thing is that we wish we had a bit more of an extra prompting of which ones. Show, show me where the good soil is. I'll put all my effort in there. But what we see throughout the scriptures is often we don't have that sort of insight. We just have a command to be faithful. To take the word of God and see it bear good fruit where God's children are found. There's no signs that you can just look for. Proclaim the gospel. Remember, even the Apostle Paul got to a point where he was scared. He was thinking, maybe I'll just tone it down a bit. Maybe I'll just keep quiet for a bit. I'm sure most of you can relate to that. I'm scared. I don't want to talk to people about Jesus. Or what if it doesn't go down well? Well, don't be afraid. God is with you. Don't be afraid. It's not your power to save someone. It's God's power to save someone. Don't be afraid. It's not your convincing, your persuasive techniques or your skilled craft that saves someone. It's God's gospel. When Paul was encouraged, no need to fear. God has a people, and there are people that God has that are around us. That propelled him forward. He kept going with joy to spread that gospel, to reach God's children. And every single one of us live in the place in which we live, work in the place we work, and as we are faithful and out of a deep desire to see people know the salvation of Jesus Christ, we're going to find that some people, even in places where we least expected it, God has a children whom he's called before the foundation of the world. And when they hear what God for them has done in Jesus through everyday people like you and I, they will turn to Jesus and they will rejoice and there will be much rejoicing in heaven as they come to trust in Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that seeing people come to Christ is not down to our skills. We thank you too that we don't just live amongst the people who are 100% so hard-hearted that, that no one will respond. We thank you that you are still at work in this world. That as you chose a people before the foundation of the world, you haven't reached 
that number, if we had, we would, this world would have come to an end. God, give us a confidence that you do still have a people around us in our midst. Give us a confidence that your gospel still does save people. And give us a sense of rejoicing corporately as a church as we see people respond to your gospel with repentance and faith and with great joy as they come to know the saviour of their souls. And we give you praise to this because you are our provider, you are our sustainer and we thank you that you are forever with us, that we don't need to fear, we just need to trust and hold on to you dearly. We give you thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen.